0: This is Mason, welcome back to another episode of Anime Attic, where we go into your attic and blow the dust off of old and possibly forgotten anime. That is not the case with this one at all. Today we are doing Ghost in the Shell, and with me today is... Hi, it's Zara Fuzzle. Hey, Zara, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Mason. Oh man, I cannot think of anyone else that I would want to have on this particular episode. (laughs) We are going to talk about some crazy stuff. For those of you who don't know Ghost in the Shell is huge in the news right now I must have gotten at least 15 requests Mm. From people being like Hey, do Ghost in the Shell Because what is Ghost in the Shell? (laughs) Because it's all over the news right now Because Scarlett Johansson has been cast In a live action version of Ghost in the Shell She's obviously an American actress Mm -hmm. And the character is ostensibly Japanese Named
1: Motoko Kusanagi
0: Exactly So there's the huge backlash about whitewashing. But the main question that I want to answer first is, what is Ghost in the Shell? Well, (laughs) Ghost in the Shell is in fact a classic anime. It's beyond a classic anime. It was one of the cornerstone animes of the 90s. It pretty much influenced everything that came after it. It was a huge movie that was Mm. directed by Mamoru Oshii. Who went on to form Production I.G., which is a monumentally huge production studio. They were responsible for a ton of stuff. Most notably, I would I would hazard to guess Attack on Titan, Blade of the Immortal, Blood Sea, all the Ghost in the Shell stuff, Tales of Eternia, the animation, Psychopass. You know, it goes on. Mamoru Oshi has done. Tons of stuff. He began a huge rise to power by directing Urutsi Atsura, which is one of the hallmark uh, best animates ever, which we'll probably do a show on at some point. But then he went off and did, you know, Ghost in the Shell. He's done stuff for the Animatrix, Pat Labor, Stray Dogs, Panzer Cops, Jinro the Wolf Brigade. He's won a ton of film awards for Ghost in the Shell, also for the Skycrawlers, also for Pat Labor. Ghost in the Shell was kind of the project that launched their production studio and kind of put them on the map. It was based on a manga that was actually called Kokaku Kidotai, which translates to Mobile Armored Riot Police. <laughs> it's written by Masamune Shiro, whose real name is Masa Nori Oda.
1: Kokaku Kidotai.
0: Yes, but with a subtitle of Ghost in the Shell. Right, and the author has gone on record as saying that he has always preferred the title to be Ghost in the Shell, but that the Japanese publishers actually didn't feel that the reading audience would get it, and so in ah. the in the first collection they insisted on the Kokaku Kidotai. That is gone by the second. Uh, iteration (laughs) and everything subsequently after that. The audience could handle Ghost in the Shell. Yeah, which has far-reaching implications as well. The title, Ghost in the Shell, means a lot both to the series and in general, but we'll get into that. Ghost in the Shell was a huge success. It was one of the first major animation films after Akira to be brought to the West. Yeah, It's one of the best-selling franchises that is currently around. It started as a manga, which was then adapted into a film in 1995. Then a Ghost in the Shell Innocence, which is a sort of sequel to Ghost in the Shell the movie, but not really. It's more kind of just a standalone thing. Then its own TV series, Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex. Mm. You had your first first gig which was basically season 1 and second gig which was season 2 and then there was also Ghost in the Shell 2.0 which was a updating yeah. of the original film because they wanted to update the at times quote crude cg effect and whatever but it's the exact same film like the star wars special editions Right. They just kind of yeah.
1: some of the things are 3d as opposed right. to their original 2d and
0: yeah and then there was Ghost in the Shell Arise, which is an OVA series, which just came out kind of recently. Oh, yeah. And that's actually a prequel, which shows about the origin of the organization that the main character joins, how that came to be. And now there's the Ghost in the Shell, the new movie, which is a continuation of the Arise storyline. And then most crazily is Ghost in the Shell, the live action film, which is due to come out next year.
1: And Mason, do we know the plot of the Ghost in the Shell live action movie? Is Is it adapting the original movie? Is it incorporating any material from the subsequent series?
0: Yes, it's not adapting the movie, the one that we're going to talk about. Word on the street is they're adapting the standalone complex season one storyline of The Laughing Man, or at least elements of it. These are the current rumors. There are two main storylines that come out of Standalone Complex. The first is called The Laughing Man, who is this kind of super hacker who's just amazing. And then the other is, um, I think it's called The Evil Eleven, which is this terrorist group that does stuff. Gotcha. The Laughing Man storyline, the Standalone Complex Season 1 storyline, is by far the most famous. It's the most easily accessible by everyone. It's also just totally cool and badass, if I can say so myself. It is awesome. The character of the Laughing Man is really good and how they deal with him and stuff. You can see elements of it in the film mm-hmm. the film is actually pretty much based on the first series of manga with the puppet master right. uh, which we're going to get into in, in just a second yeah. and there's definitely elements of the puppet master in the laughing man mm-hmm. for sure but they are treated separately the, s- the standalone complex is a um, sort of a reimagining but if you want to tie it all together and kind of watch it in any sort of order i would say that you should watch the ghost in the shell film from 1995 and or ghost in the shell 2.0, and then I would watch Ghost in the Shell: Standalone Complex Season One, and then Standalone Complex Season Two, and then Ghost in the Shell: Two Innocence which originally came out before all that but chronologically I would watch them in this order and then Ghost in the Shell standalone complex Solid State Society which was a further continuation then the Arise OVAs and then Ghost in the Shell new movie which is a continuation of the Arise and then in a completely different departure when it comes out watch the live action movie what do you want to talk about first Zara?
1: oh gosh I want to say that this is the first time I've ever seen Ghost in the Shell oh my god I never watched it oh I'm shocked Uh, I know it was always one of those video titles that was at the Video Land in the VHS, <laughs> and I was oh, I could rent that, but oh, I want to rent Zanki instead. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna watch you know Shoujo Kakumei with So I, I kind of was never intrigued enough to pick it up, but it always was present. It was always something I knew about Ghost in the Shell. It's super popular. Actually, I would get Ghost in the Shell confused with Eon Flux a oh, little sure. bit because I can see that. the art was similar and Ghost strong in the Shell, female, strong pr- female, yeah. badass. Yeah, yeah. totally. So it was really cool seeing the movie for the first time as an adult in preparation for this podcast. Sure. I was struck by like how atmospheric it was.
0: Definitely, and I want to get into that. I just want to say real quick, as a summary for our listeners, yes. Ghost in the Shell is set in 2029 in a fictional city in Japan named, I believe, Nihama. And it follows Section 9, which is kind of this Japanese NSA secret agency that handles counter-cyber terrorism. Basically, this was written in 1989. So, the idea that by 2029, mm-hmm. we would be heavily into cyberpunk, we'd have cybernetic brains and, and we'd have cybernetic arms and bodies and stuff, cybernetic eyes, things that enhance our humanity. And then, how does that affect us as humans and our society? Into all of that, the main character, Kusanagi? Yes, who is, simply goes by the major. Uh, She's the leader of this basically counter-cyber-terrorism squad. And they go around and they basically stop high-level threats because as a result of people having cybernetics and having cyber brains, which are brains that are augmented by computers, you can get hacked by really sophisticated hackers who can see through your eyes or make mm -hmm. your arms move when they're not supposed to or turn you into a weapon or whatever. And so her division is the one that's called in to like deal with these threats. They are assisted by Section 6, which is is the international affairs because quite often if you're that level of a hacker you're dealing on a multi-country basis. That's pretty
1: much it. You know, that's the plot. <laughs> Something, Yeah, I mean, we were talking about it's not a lot of plot. It's a complicated plot but that's not a lot of plot in this movie. This movie is more about the atmosphere and to some extent the characters. Very limited extent. Yeah.
0: I, I would say it's really only about two characters and really just kind of about one, the main character. Yeah, the major. Yeah, because she does have other members of her team. There's Bato, I love Bato. He's awesome. He's the best. Yeah, he's this kind of big hulking guy. He's got cybernetic eyes. And he clearly has a thing for the major. Well. We can talk about it.
1: We can talk about it. I don't know that it's so much of a romantic thing as it is a protective thing. Like, there was one scene where she's nude and he puts his coat over her. Yes. And at the end... I mean I don't want to jump the gun here. Right, sure. But I think there's elements of a very protective, I wouldn't say fatherly, but he's her partner in the field. He's her second in command. He's got her back. That's definitely true. And
0: you feel that throughout the entire team. They yeah. all respect her and they'll go to bat for her for sure. And you definitely feel that in section nine itself. Section nine is essentially eight people. And they all kind of cover Ooh. each other and, and you know ironic. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, or could, is it or could it be nine people? I don't know. <laughs> and that concept is explored in standalone complex but I wanted to focus more on the film just because you know we're, we can talk about the tv series in another episode very minuscule plot it's basically Kusanagi and her team are assigned to track down a cyber hacker terrorist known as the puppet master who is able to what's called ghost hack people with cyber brains and make them do whatever he wants and of course that for a variety of reasons is a very dangerous thing, especially since he gets his hands on super high-level government officials. So it's really just about them trying to track him down and then when they do why he's doing what he did, And that's mm-hmm. it. That's the extent of the film. Like you said, not heavy on plot at all. Mm-hmm. It is heavy on atmosphere and realism. And I think this is a hand from Mamoru Oshii where he really focuses on these shots of society yes. and technology and... And people and how they interact. I was right. actually really impressed with the realism of the world. It's mm. very dirty and used. It just feels very lived in. Yeah,
1: very inhabited. And you know, something that struck me too in the middle of the movie, there's this scene where it's just like a montage of different, almost everyday, mundane scenes. You see school children with yellow umbrellas running across the street. Right. You see street vendors. You see street signs and shop signs. And in the background, this kind of almost tribal music playing. I found myself feeling disoriented and disjoined from society. Like I was observing it, but I wasn't part of it. Yeah. I think that kind of is meant to mirror how these people with all these cybernetic implants feel not completely part of society, but removed from it.
0: I would totally agree. And the part you're talking about is meant to be an introspective part where Mm -hmm. the major is reflecting on her current condition. And so I think that's exactly what she's feeling. Because although I didn't mention this before, the major is almost 99% role. They don't really discuss this in the film. You are expected to have read the manga, but she had apparently some sort of very hideous accident as a child. It's never really gone into. But in order to survive, they took her brain and put it in a completely cybernetic body. So the only thing that's real is her brain. And this has very far reaching implications, both in the film and the TV series and the storyline overall, because essentially, what is she? Does she have a soul? You know, what is this concept? Is it in fact the Ghost in the shell. And the author has said that this is one of the concepts he's trying to explore. He also was influenced by a book called Ghost in the Machine.
1: Yes, Ghost in the Machine by Arthur Kessler from 1967. So the title of the book was Ghost in the Machine, but it's actually a phrase from an earlier writer, British philosopher Gilbert Ryle. His description of Rene Descartes' mind-body dualism, for those of you who remember uh, Descartes. I remember him in
0: philosophy where he was, uh,
1: I think, therefore I am. Yeah.
0: He's the one that says you can't know that anything's real except you because you can never get another person's
1: perspective 100%, right? I believe so. That's right. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. I just know he had a quote, one of my favorite quotes of his was, I never wake up in the morning until I feel like it. I'm paraphrasing. But I was like, (laughs) yes, as a teenager, I was like, yeah, Descartes said it, so it must be good. But this idea of mind-body dualism is essentially to highlight the perceived absurdity of dualist systems like Descartes where mental activity carries on in parallel to physical action but where their means of interaction are unknown or at best speculative. So kind of unpacking this a little bit. Please unpack. I think it's kind of speaking this ghost in the machine idea is speaking that there's the physical body mm-hmm. and there's the mind and the way they interact or where the mind is coming from ultimately is not known, but they're running on parallel tracks. And thinking about this in terms of ghost in the shell, it just it's interesting because it raises that question of how much of a human being's body and mind need to be there for it to have consciousness, right. for it to be human, for the soul to exist, if that's another way you want to phrase it it's like you have these bodies that are manipulated for various uses but where is the consciousness in that
0: it's interesting because i've seen all of it i can't get enough of ghost in the shell i've i've never read the manga which is interesting because i probably should raven will have words with me but (laughs) um but i have seen all the other stuff because I love it. I think it's such an interesting concept and an interesting character. But going back to watching the first film was really cool because none of this other stuff that I had seen had even been conceived of yet. So this is almost kind of a standalone thing. Like you're seeing where it all came from, mm-hmm. like the origin of it, but they don't have any of this elaborate backstory that they have since produced mm-hmm. feeding that. It's meant to be kind of viewed as its own thing. It's really just about her wrestling with how much of me is me yep. and how much of me is is a robot and they do this masterfully in the opening sequence. The opening title sequence is by far one of the most influential and impactful opening sequences of any anime. It has been cited as being influential on Wachowski's Matrix, obviously, the the green text on the black background. Uh, they, oh, right. They took that directly from that and, and numerous others that I, I can't remember, unfortunately. but. <laughs> Trust me. Super influential. But yeah, it's all accompanied by this musical piece, which is replayed in the sequence that you're talking about, oh. called Birth of a Cyborg. Yes. And it's, it was composed by Kenji Kawai. Kenji Kawai. Yeah. Who is a masterful... Composer. This is one of his most well-known soundtracks. I'm very happy to say he also did numerous other anime shows, including Vampire Princess Mew OVA. Mason's favorite. My absolute favorite, which I completely forgot to mention when we did that episode. (laughs) Oh, wow. But yeah, if you liked any of the music in that episode that we did, that's him. And then he went on, of course, to do numerous others. Uh, Pat Labor the Movie, Rambo One Half, Project Echo, Mermaid Forest, Dirty Pair, Burn Up. He also did the Vampire Princess Mew, the TV series, but it's not the same. Blue Seed, Sorcerer Hunters, the list literally goes on and on and on and on and on.
1: And live action horror movies like Ringu and Ringu 2. Yes, the Japanese versions. The Japanese versions, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. he's been around the block. He's very known in music circles. He's done an
1: amazing job. And he really utilizes this chorus to great effect, similar to the music in Akira and uh, similar to Revolutionary Girl Utena, the use of a choir to create these almost tribal otherworldly sounds.
0: Yeah, in particularly that kind of vocal High-pitched, youthful,
1: kind of almost childlike. Yeah. But
0: also the vibrato of it, Mm -hmm. which when I first heard it, I was like, oh my god, this is amazing. And I thought it was computer effects. Totally natural, Mm. by the way. If you want, you can check out live concert footage on the internet where they just do it. Oh,
1: wow. (laughs) Yeah, it's
0: pretty awesome. The music in this movie just takes it to the next level, man. The birth of the cyborg in the opening of the film, which I argue puts you in the mindset as she's Mm -hmm. basically being formed. And then... And in this interesting birth metaphor of the body being put together in the in the water right. and then, you know, kind of rising and, and giving birth. Very, very interesting. Also, just throughout the entire film, it's this real like mellow, kind of tonal, atmospheric thing that contrasts with A, the heavy topics that are being discussed mm-hmm. and
1: B, it's incredibly violent at times. Yeah, incredibly violent. You see, uh, you know, spinal cords oh, yeah. exposed multiple times. <laughs> multiple. <laughs> There's a scene toward the end of the movie i believe when the section nine people are raiding or preparing to go out where it's a montage of military activity Mm -hmm. but you don't hear any sound effects or any dialogue it's just that mellow kind of musical score yeah
0: the military scene i want to talk about that let's take one quick break so that we can actually try and make money we'll be right back (laughs) Okay, yeah, what were you talking about? Oh, gosh, Mason, let me look through my notes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's been forever.
1: Um, There was one scene in particular. You see this montage of activity, but it's all with this song and this score that creates... Again, you feel removed from what's going on. You don't feel immediately in danger. You feel like you're witnessing it without judging it. And this actually goes into
0: another point that I want to make. If we can talk about... Kusanagi's character for a minute. One of the things that I think is awesome is there are these nods throughout the entire film of how she's not quite human. She's actually robotic in a lot of her things that she does. And I think the fact that she's not quite human kind of underlies her her conflict and struggle throughout the entire film that she tries to figure out who she is and what she is yeah the coolest one of these in my opinion you have the opening sequence which is the birth of the cyborg and then it just cuts to her waking up and you're not sure if, if she was if that was a dream or a memory or whatever but she wakes up and she's looking at her hand and they talk about this later in the film how she's like I can look at my hand but I can't tell if it's really me or not but she's in this kind of black void where she just looks at her hand and gets up and opens the window and you realize it's an apartment, but it doesn't look like anyone lives there. It literally just looks like a room where she goes to go to sleep because there's no personality to it at all. It's a Uh. window a bed and what i find most telling is most time when people wake up you know, they stretch and kind of get out and then they go to the bathroom do their business brush their hair maybe take a shower get dressed and maybe grab a bite to eat she literally just gets up out of bed goes into the other room which we don't even see comes out putting on a jacket to leave because she doesn't have to do any of that when she's awake she's ready to rock yeah and i thought what an interesting and very subtle way to emphasize her inhumanity.
1: That's a really good point. Yeah, it immediately plants that seed of she is not like the others as we know humanity. Like she right. is she is different. Yes. And they make several points of highlighting people who are more human than robot. The character Togusa, who's the police officer who Kusanagi has a lot of interaction with, he drives her around a lot. She multiple times commends him or says, We need you because we need people like you with real brains, essentially. Yes. yes. And I thought that was so interesting highlighting that there's still utility and still a necessity for human humans.
0: And this goes into the theme or one of the themes that I picked up from the film where if everyone is the same, even if it's at a very high level, as a full cyborg, she is able to do physical feats that are way superior to normal people. Yeah. But her case to him in that scene is that if everyone was like me, if everyone becomes super cyborg, Uh we can all do this amazing stuff, but we'd all be the same. And diversity is what ensures existence because you Mm. never know what's going to come at you. The outside world will always come up with stuff that you never expect. So if everyone's the same, you'll get wiped out. Mm. That's why she's like, oh, we need you because it's diversity and he also you know he does his fair share he's not as strong or as fast as anyone but he's perceptive he's very loyal yes he's very loyal and I will say that standalone complex kind of follows him a lot why he joined his early days of joining and his relationships as they develop uh, mixed with the present day of his dealings with the major. And, oh, and, interesting. And, yeah, Standalone Complex is actually really awesome. I highly recommend it. It's a TV series. It can fit into the continuity if you want it to. It can also kind of stand on its own, standalone if you will. <laughs> Good and one. Um, it's an amazing piece of animation, most notably for the soundtrack which is Yoko Kano.
1: Oh, she's- if any the woman,
0: yeah. If anyone listened to our Escalone episode, you know she's amazing. So check out standalone complex. Also, of course, first season is the Laughing Man, which is fantastic, and that's what the live action film will most likely be based on.
1: Anyway, this whole idea of humanity, the relationship between humanity and technology, and right? What remains?
0: Because there are certain key scenes where the major, they're on a mission, and she's like, I'm going to go do this. And Bato is always like, how do you know that? She's mm-hmm. like, oh, it's a whisper in my ghost. This this comes up a couple times. Right, right. So she has intuition. She has hunches, which if you were a full robot, you wouldn't, question mark, that's the whole essence of Ghost in the Shell to me. Everything can be robotic except you have hunches and intuition. and
1: Right. And that's the value of the humanity is right. having that thing that's unknown. You don't quite know where it's coming from, speculative, but it's there. And that's what strengthens the technology of a cyborg rather it, than inhibits it. Because
0: it allows you to use things outside of the norm in in more interesting ways that mm-hmm. you wouldn't have thought of otherwise.
1: I think we should talk about the puppet master.
0: Okay, he's the villain of the film. Spoilers, I guess. Puppet Master is actually an artificial intelligence. It was a program, kind of like, I don't know if anyone saw Tron Legacy. One of the main points that they have in there is they have the ISOs, which are basically programs that that nobody wrote, cropped up because because of all the information that was floating around. Sort of like
1: an evolution of technology. Exactly.
0: And so the Puppet Master is basically that. It was a program that was written, but as it bounced around the... Tremendous web of information in 2029, it became self-aware and it kind of grew and it, it was originally written to be a espionage program that would go in and basically ghost hack people. Mm-hmm. So when it became self-aware it started trying to figure out how it could declare itself a separate entity and seek political asylum to uh, to further its own agenda, which didn't know what that was. It was just trying to get away from its masters control hands and so it escapes and I guess for some reason identifies with the Major, I guess because the Major is almost completely uh, mechanical, and yet still has an essence of soul in her. It's never really explained, perhaps it's explained in the manga, I don't know. But that's what he, and I use the term he loosely, that's what he, the puppet master, like professes Mm -hmm. to her when he meets up with her. He's like, I see myself in you. And Mm
1: -hmm. And in a sense, what struck me about the puppet master and his relationship with the major, if you want to call it that, he essentially tries to make her his bride in a sense. He wants to create progeny with her. And this interesting idea about this organic way technology is spreading and evolving, something you would not think would be organic at all. But once this technology, this intelligence is developed and unleashed on the world, it's going to continue to evolve and change and grow in a way that we no longer can control or predict, but it becomes almost like a living thing.
0: The Puppet Master is called the Puppet Master, by the way, because he ghost hacks people's cybernetic brains and as a result can take them over and make them do whatever he wants. Mm -hmm. So hence, puppeting if you will at the end he wants to merge with kusanagi it's not really clear about that they make several points throughout the film that technology has reached the point that memories are treated as data yes and so anything you can do to data, you can do to memories. You can copy them. You can replace them. You can delete them. You can edit them. You can go in and manipulate them. At that point, you realize that everything in your mind can be manipulated. And that's kind of the, the essence of the struggle for Kusanagi. And she's like, what if my brain is just a copy and I'm actually a complete robot? I don't know. I'll never be able. To, this goes back to Descartes. Right. I'll never be able to really know
1: right. what's and it's, real. It's kind of like, spoiler alert for the prestige but am I the magician or am I the man in the box Uh, Right. and also I have to talk about actually I just remembered this my favorite scene in the whole movie was exactly to your point the garbage truck driver when they were interrogating him and in a previous scene he was talking about how he's on the outs with his wife his wife wants a divorce won't let him see their kid and he shows his friend a picture which we don't see we just see the back of the picture and then when they're interrogating him they're like you don't have a wife or a daughter you've lived in your same apartment for 10 years you're the only one who's ever lived there and then they show him the photo and this is the photo of your wife or daughter yeah and it's just a picture of him and a dog yeah (laughs) like I love that and the heartbreak of him when he realizes oh my gosh everything I know is false how do I get rid of these memories and they're like we can't
0: help you with that there have been several attempts and only two have been successful so sorry you just have to live with it 10 years of fake memories
1: it's and emotions what an invasion what an utter for lack of a better word what an utter Rape of one's entire psyche.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, it's horrible. And in a way, this goes back to my favorite scene in the whole film, which ironically, isn't very much but the guy who hired the garbage collector at a bar that you don't see it happened off camera when the garbage collector realizes that the cops are onto him he rushes to try and alert the guy who quote helped him with his wife problem Uh and it's just this dude who has himself been ghost hacked by the puppet master but as the garbage man is like rushing towards him he realizes that the jig is up and the garbage man is basically leading the cops right to him and he's this cybernetically enhanced thug who's just like alright I gotta take care of business massive action sequence but my favorite part is also side note for Zara Uh you'll you'll get this I don't know if you saw but the marketplace and actually a lot of essence of the of the major were influences on C-47 like if uh, yeah yes I I actually wanted to uh... C-47 being the show we worked on yeah uh, together. Um but yeah, I, I, if if I ever get to do episode 2, uh-huh. Um my opening is going to be uh Jaya your character looking at her arm which has been repaired and getting up in her uh sparse apartment. I love it. and getting out and going to work because she doesn't have a life outside of her job.
1: Right. right. And
0: so and and I didn't realize that until I was re-watching it. I was like oh my god I totally was so influenced my by influence all. right
1: so <laughs> anyway isn't that amazing I mean your ghost was almost hacked in that sense where you have this idea right. that you think is your own for years and years and years and then you watch something that you saw years ago and you're like oh that's where I got that yeah idea. no I got it in college and it, and it was such a profound
0: effect that I was like oh man one day I'm gonna I'm gonna homage that so now now it, it will be an homage excellent but you know I'm still gonna do it excellent um Oh, and another note. I did want to say. uh, Oh, I'll I'll talk about that anyway. My favorite part is he goes on the run, and they chase him, and they go through the the street, um, the street fair, and all this stuff. And he and the guy makes it out into basically this I don't know slummy area, gutter drain, yeah, like a decrepit area Mm -hmm. near water. There's a lot of water. Yeah, Oshi loves water and he's running through it and at the same time is one of my favorite musical pieces which is very very minimalist and very very sparse and it's just kind of these bell-like tones that are kind of sprinkled through and there's no chorus or anything Mm. and he's like they're on my tail they're gonna get me and at the same time he's marveling at the simple beauty of the world around him he gets to a point where he can stop and kind of take a breather and he checks his gun and he's only got eight bullets and he looks up and the sun's coming through and it's a beautiful day the sky is blue and he's alone and he just kind of has this very very human moment of man you know this this world is good times so or I, I mean who knows what he's thinking but i connected with him in, in that point and then he eventually runs out and he has the confrontation with the major and she beats him up but at the end of it he's like screw you guys i ain't gonna talk and what kind of turns it all on its head which i thought was masterful because this whole time you've kind of been identifying with him you're like oh man you know yeah. i, I kind of want you to make it you're kind of cool dude And they're basically like, talk? You don't even know your own name. Right. And you just see this slow realization dawn on his face. And the major is like, do you remember your mom's name? Do you remember where you grew up? Do you remember any of that? And you just see that he's like, oh. And that's the thing. Batu is like, oh, these are the worst puppets.
1: Yeah. That's my favorite part. But isn't that so interesting, that judgment of others when he himself is part cyborg as well? Yeah. They judge people for being hacked. It's almost victim blaming in a sense. A little bit. Where it's yeah, like, like, you are weak. so weak. Yeah. yeah, you're so weak that you let this happen to you. Right, You're a disgrace to us. Yeah, And that's just occurred to me now. Oh, um, yeah. The implications of that are a little disturbing.
0: Yeah, but then that is turned on its head, right? Because eventually the puppet master hacks one of the most elite cyborg organizations that in fact made all of the cyborg bodies mm-hmm. that Section 9, except for Togusa, all of their bodies come from this elite right. And the Puppet Master successfully hacks into that. And so Mm -hmm. they're all like, it just got real. Yeah. We can get hacked too. Right. That's Um, true. And so this is kind of like Battlestar Galactica, the remake. Technology has evolved to a point where like, if you have the current or new technology, you can get hacked. But if you don't have it, like Togusa, Mm -hmm. uh, he can't get hacked. He's mostly organic. Yeah. But you're right. It sets up a double standard, which uh, then gets... It increases the threat to them when they realize it could happen to them. Absolutely. Yeah. And I remember the point I wanted to make about the major, and this is something that goes through all of the iterations of Ghost in the Shell, is that she does not care about her body. It's very, very interesting. As you watch everything, if you watch the whole thing, or if you watch in the movie, she doesn't care about her body. Her body is beautiful. She is a very beautiful woman, very statuesque, very fit, obviously. She's a perfectly proportioned cyborg body, but she doesn't care about it. So she thinks nothing being naked. It doesn't mean anything to her and this is expanded further on in the series and standalone complex and in the other movies because they always kind of harp back on this she just walks in and takes off her clothes and as the audience and particularly as a male watching you're like oh whoa but then you're kind of like oh it doesn't matter to her that's not the point and so kind of the jokes on you organic dude
1: Yeah, it's kind of like I imagine for me, the nudity was not titillating, but in the sense that it is a naked body, it just feels like a nude naked body and the reality of that rather than the sexual aspect of that. There's so many breasts in this movie, right? but it's not really titillating. It's almost like seeing someone breastfeeding, like the breast is right. a utility. It also makes you think because these things are cyborg components, but this very, very physical, visceral reaction to naked human breasts.
0: Right. And there's another aspect of it, too, in that it allows the beauty of the body in the female form and also the male form mm-hmm. w- when they get around to it. It allows the artist and the art design to, to really flourish. Mm. we haven't discussed this yet. The art in this piece is masterful it really set the bar for an entire new level of animation. There was Akira. Exactly. And then the next jump up was Ghost in the Shell, I would argue. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the ways they do that is by drawing these incredibly beautiful, realistic bodies. Very
1: realistic. Well, exactly. You said earlier, proportioned. Yeah.
0: Everything. Oh, yeah. And I think that their goal was to kind of emphasize the art over the sexuality of it. Yeah. I would agree with you that most of it is not titillating, but there are certain key scenes, not just in Ghost in the Shell, but throughout the entire standalone complex and Arise and all that stuff where it is meant to be titillating to the viewer. One that comes to my mind and strengthens my case on why I think Bato has romantic feelings for the Major is when they're on the boat and she's scuba diving which is basically tempting death because her body weighs, I don't know, a ton, literally. Uh. And she's scuba diving uh, so if, if, if any of her equipment fails she'll just sink like a rock to the bottom forever. But anyway, he's on the boat. and He's kind of watching over her because he wants to make sure she gets out okay. And she comes out and she's like, I didn't ask you to come or whatever. And she goes into the other cabin and starts taking off her wetsuit. And he looks at it and then it's titillating because it's this kind of peeling away of the wetsuit. And it's very clearly she's nude underneath. And he gets ashamed and looks away. Mm. And so that's why I was like, oh, I guess he's got a little thing for it. However, you as the viewer also, or at least I also was like, oh, I feel a little ashamed too. Sorry, I shouldn't.
1: Like you're looking into something that you shouldn't be seeing. Right. That's yeah. a private moment. I mean, it's also to see someone so confident and not giving a crap. It makes you feel uncomfortable. When in our society, we've been programmed, I think, to like re- respond a certain way to nudity. So when you see it so brazenly, quote unquote, being thrown in your face, it's interesting that, again, it makes you feel disoriented and it makes you reassess, why am I having this reaction?
0: Right. Right. And is it just the organic response? Which yeah. is what I, I got out of it. And also, I should say that her nudity does have have a plot device
1: connected with it. Why does she have to be nude? Yeah,
0: one of the huge technological advances is thermal optic camouflage. It's the ability to bend the light around you so that what you see is a reflection of what's around you and as a result, your eye sees through you. So that's the basic concept behind thermal optic camouflage. But the end result is she can turn invisible. Right, but your clothes clothes would would, not would be on there her skin is thermo optic camouflage so in order to disappear she has to be essentially naked
1: it's interesting that you bring up the word skin because watching this movie as an adult woman i think it really resonates in the sense that you have a woman in this film who is going through a cycle of essentially renewal and rebirth she's undergoing a metamorphosis of sorts from one thing into the uncertain and unknown future and this idea of shedding of the skin, Mm. of being reborn, it just plays into that theme of I'm removing what is old and what was the previous way of knowledge and I am moving forward into the unknown, into this new self. Oh, yeah. Like you said, that imagery with the skin and the peeling off of the clothes, it's the literal shedding of the skin. It just supports that idea. Oh, well, now that you
0: bring that up, there's tons of that. On the boat, Mm. she's underwater, and then she comes up and kind of breaks through, and he's like, what's it like down there? And she's like, I feel hope because I feel like I could— come up and and be anyone and then actually they're on the boat yes
1: (laughs) uh, let's talk about the boat moment yeah let's
0: go let's go at the boat moment so after my moment of Bato catching a glimpse of her changing it suddenly jumps about I don't know a few hours it's dark Mm-hmm. And they're hanging out on the boat, kind of drinking some brews, as cops off duty would do. Uh-huh. She starts waxing on philosophically, and he's like, are you drunk? And she's like, <laughs> eh. In these bodies, if we need to, with a thought, we can metabolize the alcohol in 10 seconds. So we can be drunk and still on duty. It's just these little tidbits. Hey, we're not human. Yeah, And
1: I like that a lot. That's fascinating. And so there's a moment when they're on the boat where there's another voice that's speaking. Yeah, all of a sudden this voice that they both hear. Says something. I don't recall exactly what's said, but Bato is like, that's you, right? And the major says nothing because it's not clear, I don't think, to her where this voice is coming from. Because
0: everyone is cybernetic, they're all connected on this wireless communication. So no matter where they are, they can talk to each other. Telekinetically. Yeah. So they have these private channels where they can talk to each other. So this voice comes as if on one of those
1: channels. Yes and they don't really address it after that until the very end of the movie when she and Bato are talking again and at this point she's kind of undergone this metamorphosis she in a sense has merged partly with the puppet master oh, I wouldn't in say this partly. New body was, they they had a complete they've merged, merged. Yeah. so there's there's a duality there right of consciousnesses within the body was it
0: a duality because the whole point was I think she actually says the woman you know as the major is not here
1: nor is the
0: puppet master entity here they created something new it's a new thing that somehow and I'm not sure how is going to go and litter the net with offspring Um, Yes, And I'm not sure about that one either. But I do know that the puppet master was like, I am a life form, but I'm not alive because I can't procreate. One of the five tenets of life is procreation. You Mm -hmm. have to have the ability to procreate, otherwise you're not alive. Mm. So he's like, this is my way around that. I'm going to merge with you. Mm-hmm. I think at that point she's like, well, I can't have kids, so whatever. But he's like, we're going to become a new life form right. and you're going to litter my progeny right. <laughs> throughout the net. So I don't know how that works. but yeah. yeah.
1: So there's this new form then, speaking with Bato at the end, and she mentions the words that came to them on that boat. And I think the implication is that it's this future self, this future progeny that was speaking to both of them. Oh, like an AI? Well, it's who she is now, right? That final character at the end but kind of speaking back in time to the major and bateau on the boat. Whoa. So how did she get time travel? I don't know, but I think the implication is there's things that are still far beyond our understanding of technology. Oh, sure. And yeah, that dialogue they had at the end there really led me to believe that that voice on the boat, who was it coming from? Was it the puppet master? Possibly. Was it this version of herself in the present? Possibly. Was it from someone even further down the line. Right. It's unclear. I think it's intentionally vague, but I think it's supposed to show that there are things beyond the comprehension even of a cybernetic brain. That...
0: Phrase that thing that she's talking about that is actually a Bible verse, it's Corinthians. That the voice on the boat, the voice on the boat, and the whole thing after. I've I, it's popped up repeatedly throughout different anime and different shows and stuff. But it's basically, um, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known Mm. and so this is part of a longer diatribe it's from a letter to paul to the corinthians where he's talking about love Mm. and he's like love never fails but there are prophecies they will cease where there are tongues they will be stilled and where there is knowledge it will pass away for we know in part and we prophesy in part but when completeness comes what is in part disappears and so that's what the voice on the boat mm. said and then of course it, it ends with the famous these three remain faith hope and love but the greatest of these is love uh. and so that pops up in lots of Mamoru Oshi stuff oh, as well. Oh, yeah. interesting. Well, it pops up in a lot of places. In American stuff, too. In a lot of weddings, too. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. But it goes to what you're saying about this whole metaphor about metamorphosis and, yeah. and growing and, and becoming the next stage of evolution As I think, how they wanted us to take it. Because right. it's pretty clear that the major at the end, and as I understand it, this is, in fact, how the manga ends as well. She merges with the puppeter and becomes the next evolution of mm-hmm. the organism or whatever. You know, it's the next step when we become X-Men we're it's, right. it's the next stage it's the mutation yeah exactly so it's interesting that you mentioned the garbage man and his dog because that dog the Basset Hound uh-huh. is in all of Mamoru Oshii's stuff really yes also in that montage where you're talking about uh-huh. where she's kind of drifting and there's all these scenes and stuff there. Yes. the Basset Hound shows up again and
1: he must have a thing for Basset Hound. Oh, I
0: believe he he owns a Basset Hound. But oh. yeah, there's a Basset Hound in most of his live action films. and uh-huh. like That's this, his
1: little signature.
0: Yeah, that's his thing. He's like, this is a Mamoroshi thing. <laughs> Here's my Basset Hound. Yeah, so the film to me is gorgeous. It's very Mm thought-provoking, but it's very philosophical. It's very light on plot. The plot is there, and it's incredibly complicated, but it's not really about the plot, if that makes sense. You don't really watch it for the plot. Yeah, you're just kind of like... Okay, these people are running around and they're doing stuff, but the world is amazing, the characters are amazing, and the the issues that they deal with. I mean, what is the conclusion that you think the major comes to at the end? Is she
1: human? Well, something that struck me about this movie that was also interesting about the movie Her, For those of you who haven't seen the movie Her, it features uh, ScarJo as a kind of an operating system that has perhaps sentience and develops a relationship with her, primarily providing care for her owner. And, you know, spoiler alert for her, she kind of ends up leaving him at the end of the movie because she and other AIs transcend, other operating systems transcend and kind of go to this next level, this unknown. They evolve.
0: Damn it. I didn't know that.
1: Yeah. Oh, man. And so I couldn't help thinking while watching Ghost in the Shell that this is very similar. This continues the Japanese anime themes of a warrior woman alone in a world of men. Mm. And by the end of the movie, this female AI transcends her former self and in a sense surpasses her male companions. And so that's what struck me about this movie was just that parallel of what does it mean that it's a female character who's transcending? Because it's a theme that repeats itself.
0: Well, also tying into females are the ones that can give birth
1: Right. so that's
0: kind of an interesting the
1: gatekeepers of life
0: right it's fascinating I hadn't thought of that so you think that essentially she ascends and leaves everyone behind. So Bato is toast.
1: No, See you I, later. I don't think it's quite like that in the sense that in her, it's very much a clear, we are never going to speak again. Damn it. I think because she says, she says to Bato, I'll hear from you now and then and we'll meet here. Yeah, or something well, like. he gives her a car. He's like, take a right. car and go. The code
0: is, and she's like, oh, 2501, which is the name of the Puppet Master program. Oh. And um, and she's like, let's have that be our code for yeah. when we meet again.
1: Right. So in a sense, she is leaving him in the sense that he, she is now somewhere that he cannot uh, comprehend.
0: Yeah. But the idea is that they will reunited at some point
1: the final moment of the movie too that last line where she looks out onto the city oh
0: where am i gonna go or to what
1: will we do with this net
0: oh yeah 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 right which is a huge commentary on the internet it was 1995
1: right world. that's a great point
0: oh yeah 95 was when the internet was basic, starting to come into its own really
1: yeah it's like, when i first started to find gargoyles fan fiction
0: yes A good use. That's that's better than what I was using it for, Zara. Good job. (laughs) But the information superhighway was being constructed. It really emphasized all this
1: stuff. So let's talk about um, one of our often bandied about topics, Mason, <laughs> Sub versus Dove. Sub vs.
0: Dove. I didn't get to talk about it before. Atsuko Tanaka, who voices the major, is amazing. I don't think she's the only person who could have done it, though. I actually think that the woman who voiced Himiko in Vampire Princess Mio OVA, Mami Koyama, would be a fascinating choice as well. And also I found out that in later iterations, in Arise and other stuff, it was Maya Sakamoto, yes. who was, for those of you who listened to our Escaflone episode, was the voice of Shitomi uh, Kanzaki. She was also the voice of the
1: young major at the end of the movie in Ghost in the Shell.
0: Oh, was she? Yes. Oh. The childlike voice. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I knew that sounded familiar. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. But Atsuko Tanaka rocked it. It's very interesting because she hasn't had a lot of lead roles. If you look at her other stuff, mm. she's been in tons of stuff. Virtual Fighter, Berserk, Trigun, Cowboy Bebop. Yu-Gi-Oh Rain the Conqueror Hikai Jake Pat Labor Wolf's Rain Like she's all over the place She's done a lot of video games She's done Bayonetta and she's done a ton of...
1: The an- Lara Croft dub, in the Japanese dub of the Tomb Raider movies. Right, right.
0: And she's done a lot of anime, but always as kind of minor characters. So, it's really interesting that she was cast in this lead role, and frickin' wrote it! <laughs> like, all of the stuff. Standalone Complex, Arise, the movies. She is the major, but then later they went back to a younger version and cast the young voice. That's
1: interesting. I watched the first 20 minutes of the movie. Movie subtitled to get a sense of the Japanese voice acting, oh, okay. um, and I ended up watching the rest of it dubbed because on my TV. My Hulu app only has the dubbed version on Hulu. And I wanted to watch it on my TV. Uh, Um, So I got a sense of both worlds. And I have to say the English dub was pretty solid with the exception of the lead character. Really? Um, An actress named Mimi Woods, who's no longer a voice actor, did the voice of the major. And she, as the movie went on, she got better. She was great in action sequences and when the heat was high, when there was kind of more to do. But in the more waxing philosophical monologues, Mm -hmm. it didn't capture the tone and the introspective quality that was present in the Japanese work. They probably traced me when I accessed the sanitation department network.
0: Yes, I will say this. The Japanese version, obviously, I am a huge sub fan. The Japanese version, I will say that she brought it. She did the introspection. She did the action. I could see her having the authority, the command. I also felt that there would have been other actresses that could have done it. There wasn't anything that really spoke to me that I was like, oh, man, her. Versus Bato, Mm. who was voiced by Akio Atsuta. He rocked. And he is also a very well-known um, voice actor. He's done a, a ton of other stuff. Trigun, Cowboy Bebop, Silent Mobius, Vampire Princess Mew, the TV series, City Hunter, Escaflowne, Virtual Fighter, Mobile Gundam Wing, just tons and tons of stuff. But yeah, he was amazing. I don't know how he fared in the dub. But I will say this, that I'm surprised to hear you say that the dub on the lead actress wasn't so good because the American dub came out, oh man, 2004? I don't know. So... The dub was happening and they had money for it. It was a pretty big
1: deal, right? I don't know about the production of the dub, but, but you know, we've talked about this before. I mean, what's key in a good dub is capturing the tone. The tone. And you not... don't
0: think she pulled it?
1: I don't think so. It took me out of Man. it. Oof. But the voice actor playing Bato, yeah, uh, he, he was great. He was great. Like Oh,
0: in the dub as well? In the
1: dub. In well. the dub. That's
0: like, fascinating. Got him, huh? Well, the breach in the barrel are really screwed up. That's what happens when you use HV bullets in one of these things. Oh, yeah. That
1: was a little, you know, upsetting to me because the male voices were generally very, very solid and sounded natural. And it was really just the lead character's voice that stuck out to me. As I wonder if maybe off. it
0: was her first thing or maybe it was a big project and she just got nervous.
1: Potentially, they auditioned her on the action scenes, which she sounded great on. Is
0: that where she takes control? It's like, get over here, do this or whatever.
1: Well, it's just action is in a sense... (sighs) it can be easier, quote unquote, to do because when you're talking about something introspectively or, you know, you have a monologue where there's emotion involved, there's lots of different things that you have to be doing and think about in order to make it sound effortless. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're instead envisioning yourself in an action scene, you don't have to do as much mental work because you're doing it. (laughs) Like there's more action. (laughs) Actors are always better when we have stuff to do because then we're not focused on the way stuff is coming out of our mouth. We're more grounded. So she sounds more grounded in those action sequences than she does sitting on the boat talking to Bato, which is a shame because those are the scenes that are giving you all the philosophical meat of the movie. Do you think that they basically had her watch
0: the scenes as she was doing it? Sometimes they have the screen in front of the actor and, yeah. and they're watching, and so maybe when she's watching the action scenes, there's a lot of visual stuff going on. Potentially. And then the boat, I mean, they're holding a beer, staring at each other. I don't know. <laughs> Well, that's really interesting. Yeah, that's just my opinion. I mean, no, I'll have to go and listen to the dub. I intentionally stayed away from it, so maybe I missed out. Well, there you go, Zara. Point
1: for your side on this one. Uh, There's no size. I mean, obviously, I as someone who speaks Japanese, I love... The original versions. Right, but I'm just saying. But I do appreciate well-done English voice work, too. And I
0: will give it to you. On this one, it was there. So, yes, the dub is good on this one. Check it out if you can get past the major. So one thing that I want to talk about a little bit, and I'm going to do an addendum to this episode, which, if you're available, I'd love to have you, but we're going to talk about the Scarlett Johansson casting controversy. As we mentioned at the top of the episode, Ghost in the Shell has been greenlit for a live-action American adaptation Starring Scarlett Johansson Paramount is doing it They have released the first stills of the film And everybody has just been absolutely beside themselves with rage Because Scarlett Johansson is clearly a white female Portraying an Asian female named Moko.
1: Motoko Kusanagi. Yeah.
0: So there has been outlandish, hate-filled <laughs> reviews of this, and they, they're they calling it whitewashing, which is, I guess, washing away the Asianness with your whiteness. A lot of people are dead set against it. And then there was further revelations that came out that paramount tried to use computer graphics or cg to ethnically shift
1: oh my gosh (laughs) Um, that is so crazy it was
0: really yeah to ethnically shift scarlett (sighs) johansson to make her look more asian
1: yellow face basically digital yellow face
0: yes and work on the eyes slant the eyes a little bit what's interesting to me we'll obviously get more into this in the debate but i agree that what they did was horribly wrong and I'm not a fan of it, and, you know, all this stuff. Which
1: part, the casting or the digital yellow face?
0: Both but I can see where they're coming from. First of all, Scarlett Johansson is a huge star. There's not that many people that I would list as A-list celebrities anymore. Scarlett Johansson is one of them. Jennifer Lawrence is probably another. And these are female Hollywood A-listers, and they're white. You know, I mean, that's just that's just how it is. So if you're looking to get your movie made in today's Hollywood system, casting a name that will get butts in the seats because people will go and see a Scarlett Johansson movie just because her name is Scarlett Johansson, is probably your best bet, especially when you're dealing with a very high-concept film about cyborgs and robots and what's real and what's not. If you want to assure your investors that they will get their money back casting a hugely named star, I can see why they did it. Do I agree with it? No. But I understand why.
1: Thoughts, Zara? Oh, my gosh. Uh, It's hard because what you said is about her ability to sell movies is absolutely true. And from a studio perspective, if that's what you're looking to do, which they are for a financial model, you do want to cast a known quantity, you want to cast an actor who has proven faculty With the material. I think you brought
0: up earlier that she rocked Lucy, which is essentially an action woman. And 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 your thoughts on her.
1: And Lost in Translation, you know, arguably her debut film kind of introduced her to this world of Japanese audience, Japanese culture. Oh, man, I hadn't thought of that. So connecting all the dots, she's a great choice in a sense. But I think there's also a huge responsibility there as an Asian-American, you know, as a South Asian-American woman. I've been hearing so much hurt and so much sadness and so much frustration from my East Asian American colleagues because they are not being invited to the table at a moment, at a perfect opportunity for an East Asian American actor to take the mantle of a role that is from East Asia. What an amazing opportunity to let someone rise to that level, to bring someone in and give them the exposure that they deserve, that Very few opportunities come that way that are so tailor-made for an East Asian American actor. And instead you give it to someone who's already at the top of the food chain? It just seems like such a terrible missed opportunity and a terrible diminishing, like, you don't matter. Your culture, your face does not sell movies. You do not matter. And that is an incredibly discouraging thing that we as non-white actors, as people of color, face every day enough as it is in our business. So this is like rubbing salt deep into a wound that already exists.
0: Yes, you make valid points. I certainly understand the pain that it's coming, and I would love if they could bring over somebody. I thought, what about Zheng Ziyi or Michelle Yeoh? Or...
1: There are plenty of Japanese actresses and Japanese-American actresses who could rock this part. And you're absolutely right. I mean, but yes. I, but
0: I think it speaks to the current filmmaking climate that I can't name any of them. I don't know any of them.
1: And what an amazing opportunity would it be for a film like this to then give you someone to be able to name?
0: It would be awesome. I also would argue that if I'm Joe Schmo sitting in Milwaukee drinking a beer, if somebody says, hey, I'm going to go see the new Scarlett Johansson film, I'm going to get out of my chair and go versus, oh, hey, there's, you know, this cyborg movie starring... Ray ayanami you know, I would just be like, oh, I'll catch it when it comes out on video, whatever. And its ticket sales are what drives the industry.
1: While that's true, I believe there has to be an ethical balance of what are you going to do to further the industry? What are you going to do to evolve it? What are you going to do to transcend what Ooh, currently exists? Yeah, this like is the, Ghost in the Shell. This, this is
0: like Ghost in the Shell. You know, if you stagnate, you die. Yeah. If you don't adapt to diversity, good point. Yep, way diversity to, is to, necessary. Way to bring it home. <laughs> all right all right so it's I a mean, good note to end on that's a good one
1: i give it to you thoughts overall of the film which thing recommend it ghost in the shell i would recommend uh to people who don't want to watch something for plot don't want to watch something necessarily for action even though there are really cool action sequences in there i recommend this to anyone who has questions about the nature of technology and the way it integrates into our lives and the ramifications for the future why are you laughing mason it's just so funny. Like, aside from myself, I'm trying to think of anyone who would be like, I want to know more about the way that technology is influencing our culture. Because, okay. no, no, you sold it to me. Like, I'm like, yeah, I want to watch it again. Okay, it's cool. I think you need to watch it. If you're an anime fan at all and you have missed it, like me, definitely watch it. Because it's a sure. key piece of history in its context. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with you. I also think everyone should watch it. It is a little rated R. So I would, you know, if you're if you're trying to watch out for your kids or whatever, be careful. Yeah. But it was very interesting to see the CG and the hand-drawn stuff kind of come together in such an effortless way that paved the way for yeah. almost everything that we see now. And then also, you're right. It deals with themes that essentially don't get old. I, I did laugh but how our society deals with this incredibly rampant growth Of technology is a very real issue that is all around you. I mean, just look at everyone with their smartphone. Yep. And their cybernetics is happening. It is a real growing field. You can look on YouTube where they plugged a camera into a guy's brain and he saw stuff. This is happening, and how are we gonna deal with it? How are we gonna handle it? And I think that Ghost in the Shell is a a really good meditation on a how society deals with technology, like you said, Mm -hmm. and B, it forces you to question your own kind of human condition. Yeah which not a lot of animes do. Yeah. So I'm a fan. Well, thank you, Zara. Thank you for coming in and talking about it. Mason, thanks
1: for having of me. Of course,
0: always. You are always welcome. How can people get a hold of you or find you?
1: Oh, gosh. Uh, my website is ZaraFuzzle.com. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter at at Zara Fuzzle. And something I just did came out recently, Titus Andronicus, the web series. Yeah, hilarious. (laughs) Thank you. If you're interested in Shakespeare or interested in film noir, check it out. It's a really clever take on Shakespeare. And mysteries, if you like mysteries. Yes, if you like whodunits, check it out. It's a lot of fun. It's three episodes. Each episode's like six
0: minutes long. Basically, each episode is a famous Shakespearean play that there's a mystery. It's a modern day take on the concepts. And Titus Andronicus, who are the detective- Duo, we're buddy detectives. Try to solve it, and it's all these Shakespearean setups. I think in your first episode, I believe it's Ophelia hires you to
1: Yeah, to find out who killed Hamlet's dad because yeah. Hamlet's really freaking out and acting weird about it. Hilarious. Yeah. As a Shakespeare fan, I found it hilarious.
0: Anyway, you you were amazing. Thank I highly you. recommend check it out. It's
1: Titusandronicus.com. Boom. Boom! Check it out.
0: Anyway, and thanks everyone for listening to Anime Attic. We are brought to you by Meltdown Comics, 7522 Sunset Boulevard. Come down and check us out. We have manga and comics and events and anything that you could possibly want to check out. So thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you uh, next time. Bye-bye. Bye.